You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Barry Bloom, professor of immunology and infectious diseases and former dean of the school, and William Hanage, associate professor of epidemiology and faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, June 3rd. Dr. Bloom, do you have any opening remarks? Uh, there's lots of new things to talk about, particularly questions about serology, questions about uh, hydroxychloroquine and treatment and prevention. Uh, so I would look forward to trying to be helpful on any of the questions from the press. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Hanich, do you have anything you'd like to say? Uh, I would like to say hi to everybody. Um, good morning. Um, I would echo what Barry was just saying, and I will add that, of course, in my kind of customary almost weather forecasting update, I will note that overall it appears that the reproductive number in the U.S. is hovering around one, um, but there appear to be evidence of increasing cases slowly in California and Texas and indeed Virginia as well. Um, it's too early to see much evidence of anything that would happen from reopening, but I look forward to discussing what that might look like. Okay, great. Um, thank you, Dr. Hanich. First question. Hi, uh, thanks for doing the call. Um, can you just kind of describe where we're at uh, in the U.S. in terms of the pandemic versus, say, mid-May? Um, are we at an inflection point because of the opening of businesses? And also, you mentioned some trends in, uh, I think it was California, Texas, and Virginia. Can you expound on that uh, a little bit? Thank you. Sure, I think that um, sounds like it's directed at me. So yeah, I mean, the situation now in the United States is, and I've sort of said this before, but it always bears repeating, to a large extent, you don't have one single pandemic, you have lots of, you know, lots of separate pandemics, which are happening in different rates in different places. So early on, you saw this very big surge in the Northeast, which is now finally beginning to sort of die down to, you know, levels which are still higher than many of the many parts of the country, but which are obviously past a peak. I won't say the peak, but I will say a peak. And, you know, we, that is the result of the interventions that were put in place. In other parts of the country, you can see evidence for a slower rate of increase. And I called out California, Texas, and Virginia, because if you look at the apparent rates of reporting of cases and hospitalizations, it looks as if in those places there is a significant but slow increase in the amount of disease. But even in those places, it's difficult to come up with an overall um, sort of one-size-fits-all depiction of what's going on because there's a big difference between what you're seeing in these metropolitan areas in which you've got a kind of, you know, what epidemiologists call almost deterministic process because there's a lot of people, there's a reasonable amount of mixing, you don't get a big, you know, there's no big effect of random chance. So those are increasing comparatively slowly. But then, and I'm sure you've seen this already, if you think about communities like Amarillo in Texas, up towards the Panhandle, there have been really very high rates of local disease in some small and rural communities. So if I were to describe the pandemic in the United States overall now, it would be that there are, there's a slow embers burning within the metropolitan areas and there are little sparking fires heading off all over the heartland. And that's the situation as it is now. Numbers are hovering around steady, 
but we have to remember that that is reflecting a decrease in the northeast and a slow increase which is replacing that elsewhere thanks and uh, just real quick have you seen any major changes in demographics uh, whether age or uh, racial groups um, since a few weeks ago or, or are things kind of staying the same in that regard so far as I can see that I think things are staying pretty much the same I don't think we've got any data to suggest that there's any major changes I mean the thing that we have to remember is that you know that will to an extent reflect exactly where the pandemic is at that moment and the kind of folks who are living there thank you I would just add um, my usual caveat that what you see is not what's there in the sense that with the relaxation of social distancing and reopening cities, if we're going to see effects, they're going to be two to four weeks from uh, probably June 1st. So um, that's where I'll be looking and most concerned about. Yeah. I would I would agree with that. It may even be we may get to this later, but it might, depending on exactly what happens, it could be that or the effects could be relatively small for a while, but they will change. Thank you. Next question. Thank you for taking my question. Um, we've seen reports of testing site closures over the weekend and this week in response to protests um, in places like L.A., Chicago and elsewhere. Um, could you uh, talk about how these uh, testing site closures could affect efforts to contain the pandemic? Obviously, we don't know yet if these testing closures are going to be uh, permanent or, or just temporary, temporary, just, you know, for a, a few days. But, um, and then my follow-up question to that is, um, you know, what impact could this have on urban populations? Barry, do you want to take that or shall I? Uh, you take it, though. So, obviously, I mean, it depends very much upon the amount of testing that is being done there that is relevant to the local public health response. If it's a major contributor to it, then you would expect there to be, you'd expect there to be knock-on effects. Um, one would hope that they will be able to be reopened or there will be an opportunity for backup testing. Um, but, you know, it's understandable that they have closed. As for the longer term effect upon those populations, we have to remember that those populations are at particular risk. And so we have to make efforts in order to maintain testing, keep it going. And, you know, you know, remember that this is something that is going to be with us for quite a while. Because we've had to close things temporarily, we do have to come up with a way of solving that problem in the long run. And I believe that there was another question which I may have been forgetting. Could you just quickly repeat it? Um, yes, I think you answered that. My follow-up question was, uh, what impact could that have on urban populations who are already um, more at risk for, uh, for you know, getting the coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, the, the impact will be on the ability to tell exactly what is going on there and to enable to give people advice for what to be doing. And it's, um, so the effect is, as much as anything, a problem in our ability to be able to monitor the state of disease within them. If they are feeling sick, then obviously they should self-isolate and hopefully would be able to advise their contacts that they should limit their contacts. Do you have a follow-up for that? No, that's all. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Next question. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, I have uh, two questions questions. One is uh, how you feel about the researchers who deny the extreme danger of COVID-19 and still say that it's uh, 
similar to seasonal um, flu. Barry, or shall I? I couldn't understand. Could you repeat the question? Yeah, so uh, some of the researchers still deny that, you know, COVID-19 is uh, dangerous and they still compare it to seasonal flu. How, you know, relative is that? It's uh, very different than seasonal flu in uh, the following senses. Um, um, it's new. We don't have prior experience or prior immune memory to it. Whereas with influenza, people, almost everybody has antibodies to some previous strain of influenza. So there's a, a little bit of immunologic preparation. Um, in flu, once again, um, there's not a lot of shedding prior to people being sick. And really the driver, the unknown driver of this infection with coronavirus is that people are transmitting before uh, they are known to be uh, positive or ill, which means we're having great difficulty finding all the sources of transmission. Um, so those are two major variables. And the third is flu comes back in a related but different form every year. This virus appears to be at least immunologically relatively stable. We hope it stays that so that um, if there were such a thing as a protective vaccine, uh, we wouldn't have to make a new different strain every year. It might be much more effective than um, the imperfect vaccines we have for influenza. Thank you. I would, I would echo everything um, uh, that Barry just said. Um, I would add a couple of things. Um, First, I would, I would add that it's absolutely correct that there's a huge amount of pre-symptomatic transmission um, when it comes to SARS-CoV-2, the current pandemic virus. Um, in you know, work that I have been involved with, which is on publishers yet, so don't run off of this, but it's consistent with other published work, suggests that between 60 to 80% of transmission events happen at a pre-symptomatic stage of infection. The other thing about it is the severity. Now, we worry about the it's very difficult to estimate the infection fatality rate, which is the, you know, the numbers of people who die who are infected, which is different from the case fatality rate, because cases are the things that we can spot. And we tend to spot more severe cases for obvious reasons. So people have been spending a lot of time trying to figure out the case fatality rate. Oh, sorry, the infection fatality rate from the case fatality rate. And we're now finally being able to do that because of some pretty good serology, which is beginning to come out which tells us how many people have been infected. Now, taking together data from New York City, from um, Spain, France, and the United Kingdom, I would say we're, we're zeroing in on an infection fatality rate of about you know, one in 200 to one in 100. Now that is five to 10 times more than seasonal flu. So for each infection, it is you know, five to 10 times more likely to kill you than seasonal flu is. And one final thing to get it through, it's very interesting to note, if every single man, woman, and child living in New York City had been infected with seasonal flu, you would expect the total number of dead people to be one in a thousand. So around, uh, we're, we're talking around sort of 8,000 or so. And in fact, as we know, it's much more than that. 
So in other words, we do not need, we should not need to be having the argument that it's like seasonal flu. It's much worse. And we know that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Next question. Hi, thank you so much for um, doing this call and taking my question. I was hoping um, you could talk a little bit about uh, super spreading and um, how, you know, we're under still learning more about how that is playing a role in transmission. And, um, and on top of that, if, uh, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, if this is becoming, or it's becoming clearer that this is a bigger problem, does it change any uh, recommendations as um, states reopen um, social distancing measures that, that would be helpful? Thank you so much. Why don't you start? Sure. Um, thank you for the question. That, so, super spreading events are the consequence of what we call an overdispersed reproductive number, which is a way of pointing out that the reproductive number is an average. It's the average number of infections which are caused if you by one person who is infected right now. So, it's the average number of secondary infections from a case. Um, it's the basic reproductive number if there's no immunity. Now, being an average, that doesn't mean that it's symmetrically distributed around um, that average. What there could be is that some people could do much, much more infecting. And this is the so-called super spreading events. Now, we know from the study of the original SARS and the original, and, and also MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that they have is overdistributed distributed which means that a minority of cases cause the majority of onward infections. Now, a body of evidence which is coming together for COVID suggests that around 20% of infections are responsible for around 80% of onward infection events. So that means that it shifts the thing that we need to be worried about from thinking about cases to thinking about transmission events. Now, the question then becomes, what should you do about that? Well, if we knew what made somebody a super spreader, then we'd be able to target that. But at the moment, we don't. And it's not clear whether or not it's due to features of, um, you know, the viral infection itself, or if it's just something to do with the number of contacts that some people happen to make. Uh, perhaps there's a, like a sweet spot when people shed a large amount of virus, and if they happen to be in a situation where they're shaking a lot of hands, or you know, you know, at that point giving it a lot of opportunities for transmission, it takes it. We don't know that. So, however, the issue is that if this is the case, then it may be that we can perhaps come up with somewhat more. You know, some of the social distancing which we're putting in place may be more important than others, because what the crucial thing is, is we limit the opportunity of the virus to spread to large numbers of other people. And as I said earlier, it shifts the focus from a case to a transmission event. So when you identify, this is a thing for contact tracing as well, when you identify that transmission has occurred, it means you should redouble your efforts to be testing and looking around there, because identifying one transmission means it's more likely that there will be others if you go look for them. I would just add to that. We know from um, what turned out to be important medical anecdotes um, that these super spreading events can be quite uh, triggered by a single individual. Korea had everything uh, under enormous control and there was a single visitor to the country who went to flower five bars in one evening and caused a flare-up that caused about 169 uh, cases. Then there's the case of a chorus, a church chorus in a rehearsal 
for two and a half hours where one member of the 88 person chorus uh, uh, was not feeling well and was later found to uh, get quite sick. Um, about something like 59 people got sick, two of them died. Um, and to go back to Korea, the original uh, super spreading event was a church event with an enormous number of people in close contact. And they dispersed all over the country and that's what led to the uh, spread of the epidemic there. So the practical take home lessons are from Bill's point, it's very difficult to identify an individual super spreader. It is not difficult to identify events that bring a very large number of people together in a small um, uh, enclosed space. Again, the um, biotechnology company in Boston with 175 people attending a conference, two visitors from abroad, both healthy, uh, caused over 100 cases in Boston. Um, so one of the messages is to cut down the opportunities to bring very large numbers of people together for any considerable period of time in an enclosed uh, space. And this has become contentious um, because uh, as we would learn from the New York Times today and earlier, um, in the original CDC new guidance on how to uh, reduce the spread of the epidemic as we open up cities, one of the recommendations was to avoid many per person events, including worship services. And as you know, that was taken out of the report at the request of the White House. Uh, that is not good health, public health policy. Those are gatherings that really do need uh, to be limited in size and duration for contact. And choruses do lead to singing, which gives more aerosolization of virus spread. Um, so getting the public health and the politics on the same uh, path has been challenging in this epidemic. Did you have a follow-up question? Um, no, that, thank you so much, that's helpful. Next question. Um, I, I actually have a slightly related question to what Beth had asked. Um, one of the things, oh, I, I guess I have a, two questions, but I'll start with this one. Um, what are the things that states should be looking at in terms of their readiness to reopen and lift restrictions? Um, and is Massachusetts in particular, do you think, ready to move on to phase two and allowing things like in-store browsing, uh, the opening of restaurants, hotels, some youth sports? Yeah, I'll let you start. So, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm not actually sure I'm able to speak to Massachusetts at the moment because my focus for the last few days has not been Massachusetts. I've noticed that there have been some, I will make the comment that there have been some apparent increases, but that's actually due to starting to add together some presumed cases and deaths which have been occurring over the last few months. I think that the most important thing for any state when it comes to reopening um, I think there are two things that actually need to be really addressed. The first is that the word reopening suggests that there will not be a reclosing. Now, when, as the virus is given more opportunities to transmit, we can be pretty confident that it is going to take them. And if reopening leads to more opportunities for transmission, then we are going to see more cases in the future. So the question becomes, 
how ready are you to deal with that? And do you know what you are going to do? So I think that for all states, not only Massachusetts, I mean, Massachusetts, I think, has been comparatively clear on this, but it's still very important that we come up with a set of metrics, which you can see as triggers for prompting future action. And we can be clear, you know, we should educate the public right now about what that action might be. Um, and, you know, I will not specify exactly what they are because they will depend on local conditions and they will depend on um, the local capacity for testing and things like that. But you might suggest that a certain number of new cases, um, a certain number of new hospitalizations, a, the possibility of an increase in the effective reproductive number that I was talking about previously, um, or perhaps some increase in environmental surveillance of wastewater showing that there's more virus um, being shared in stool, suggesting more community transmission. And what I think you need to do is, I mean, what we have been doing too much of is being reactive to the pandemic. We should be proactive, meaning that we should be trying to get out ahead of the virus, understanding that what we're looking at now is, you know, we're seeing sort of where it has been. We're not seeing where it is transmitting right now and trying to anticipate that and be ready to take action in the future as it is necessary. And I think that's true, not just for Massachusetts, but basically everywhere around the world. I would uh, agree absolutely with everything uh, that Bill said. I think there are a couple parameters that one really uh, has to keep one's eyes on. Um, in essence, the bending of the curve was designed to protect the hospital system so that there would be enough opportunities for high level care for whatever number that one could have expected to come in a way. And uh, that's the bottom line here. If there is uh, an increase in cases due to reopening, um, for me, the limit would be to be absolutely certain there are sufficient beds and uh, medical equipment to be able to handle whatever that is likely to be two and a half to three weeks uh, in advance of that first number of cases. Uh, cases is too late to do it well, to do what Bill says, which is to get ahead of the curve. And that really requires um, testing and case uh, uh, finding and, and tracking of cases. If we know the number of individuals uh, in a given locus within the city, uh, any city, but certainly this one, uh, if the numbers are going up in Chelsea, for example, um, that's where you would want to put an enormous amount of effort into contact tracing to be able to isolate people and again, I think one of the things we've tried to emphasize is testing is not an intervention that prevents anything. It's the isolation of those people identified that are positive, which is the intervention that blocks chains of transmission. So just counting cases or counting positives without uh, isolating the people to prevent transmission is not going to change the numbers. Uh, so those are the two things carefully calibrating what's expected two to three weeks now in advance or so in hospitals and looking for increases in cases in local areas that then could be contained. 
by isolation. I think that's very well said. Um, I would add perhaps just one thing because it's something which is an opportunity to raise an issue which I haven't seen raised enough, um, which is the, we have, it is absolutely important as Barry was saying, the crucial thing is that we want to preserve healthcare. Now in many places, people are stating that healthcare has been preserved and has not been overwhelmed. Um, that's actually a little bit um, disingenuous because if you, the way that that has been achieved in some places has been by basically stopping large parts of what healthcare does and turning over ICUs entirely to treating the pandemic. Now we should remember that healthcare does a whole lot of other things as well, from cancer screening to you know, treating people with heart attacks and so on and so forth. And it's gonna be a very long time before we see the full consequences of um, the pandemic, but we should be, we should not be you know, waiting until healthcare is pushed to the absolute limit. We should be trying to figure out action that we can take earlier on in order to manage things effectively. That's, and that's something which I haven't seen enough discussion about. The other thing I wanted to ask about is the serology tests that uh, a lot of states are conducting now. I know that this is somewhat controversial. What are your thoughts on sort of the validity of the serology test and what, and how we should really be interpreting it? So maybe I'll start on that. Um, the serology test tells you um, at some level of specificity and sensitivity um, in principle that you've been infected with the coronavirus. And um, there are issues with both specificity and sensitivity. Uh, because you're exposed to other coronaviruses, um, if the prevalence of infection in the community is low and the virus is not 100% specific for coronavirus 19, um, you will pick up a certain number, maybe 1 or 2% of reactions that say you've been infected and in fact, they are probably cross-reactive to some protein uh, in one of the other coronaviruses. Uh, if you infer from that that because your test is positive, you're immune, uh, that would be a grave mistake at this point. And um, so the caution is um, it is very difficult to interpret it intelligently for what it means right now for the individual. Uh, another example, what makes the tests more sensitive is to include multiple different proteins from the virus. The spike protein is the one that we know neutralizing antibody reacts against and protects at least infection in monkeys and in uh, tissue culture but it's not the major antigen. And the other two antigens that are in some of the diagnostic tests are more abundant in the virus and hence give you more positives. But an antibody to them, as far as we know, is unlikely to be protective and actually could be counterproductive and lead to enhancement. So just having an antibody, even if it's specific, but it isn't to a part of the virus that we know neutralizes it, does not indicate again that you have an antibody that is uh, protective. 
Um, so my sense right now is, as Bill pointed out, epidemiologically, it's very useful to know what parts of cities have had abundant infections, what parts of states like upper New York State um, has very low seropositivity. Uh, that gives you a very good idea of the abundance of infection within a community or at least past infection. Where I would be very cautious is drawing any conclusion that because you're positive in one test that you're ready to go back to work because you're immune. And that's the answer that everybody most wants. And that's what I think, with all due respect, journalists have to be clearest on. Um, a positive antibody could be helpful, but it isn't a guarantee of protection to you or the companies or businesses that you will go to work in. Yep, that was excellent. Barry knows, um, I think Barry knows a lot more about immunology than I do. So, I mean, I will um, offer some more general comments on um, on the value of these tests. Um, as you said, there's a relatively high rate of false positives, which comes from confusion with the other kind of milk toast coronaviruses that we don't, we, 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 which we see circulating every year. And if you're using a serological assay in a place where there is very, very low amounts of COVID infection, then you can completely artificially inflate it because most of the signal will be the false positives. The reasons why we are starting to get what we are thinking of as good serological data is because we've been starting to use it in places like Spain, France, the United Kingdom, New York City, where we have reason to think that there has been a lot of infection. And so whatever signal is coming from false positives is overwhelmed by the true signal. Um, the other important thing to note about it is that it takes time for antibodies to develop and it takes time for the different types of antibodies which are detected by the test to develop. And so you're really only able to see if somebody was infected up to you know, three weeks in the past. So anybody who was infected more recently like that will, may not have generated enough antibodies yet in order to be coming back as positive. Finally, um, I want to reiterate, because there is a positive test, that doesn't necessarily mean you are immune. You can, there is emerging evidence, I think, that you get lower antibody titers if you have, if there's less severe infection. So if you had a milder case, you may have lower antibody titers than if you had a more severe case. And as Barry indicated, there's a thing called antibody dependent enhancement, which we know about from other viruses, which means that if some antibodies could actually make subsequent infections worse. And we don't know enough about this at the moment to be able to be absolutely clear upon any of those things. And so it's a space which we're gonna to have to watch pretty darn closely. But do, don't think just because you've got a positive antibody test back, that you're in the clear. Thank you. Um, I, I don't I, want to. Sorry, I, I don't want to take up too much time. But uh, I, my my colleague who couldn't be here today wanted me to ask this question. Um, people who are particularly high risk for COVID, anyone who's elderly or with an underlying um, medical condition, is there a different set of rules for them when it comes to feeling safe to venture back out? Um, you know, what are what are the situations in which a family member might be able to visit a relative? In like a nursing home, given uh, the current situation. I'll try. I'll have a stab at that. I think it's an excellent question. Um, so, if you were to ask me what I would do, if I had, I would visit a relative in a nursing home if I were confident that I had been um, practicing 
good social distancing and making it virtually very unlikely that I myself was infected for a period of two weeks beforehand. I think that if that were the case, I'd be pretty comfortable going into the nursing home. I probably wouldn't be comfortable going back until, you know, two weeks had elapsed in case I had become infected while on there, while actually making the trip. Um, when reopening, in all situations, at-risk populations should be protected as much as possible. However, I want to point out that there is a tendency sometimes for people to say that you can kind of ring fence the at-risk populations and that they're going to be, you know, you can preserve them in that way and that you could have the outbreak run riot, comparatively speaking, within younger age groups and preserve the older ones. Um, that's dangerous. And it's dangerous because this is a respiratory virus for which there is not really significant population immunity, even in some of the places which have been most hard hit already, which can be, as we said, transmitted before symptoms become apparent. Therefore, the only way to handle it is to assume that everybody is potentially infectious. And it's very difficult, come impossible, to fully insulate those people who are at risk. And I think that states moving forward should you know, really grapple with that situation and be directing resources in order to helping them because of the fact that you know, they are going to remain at risk for quite some time. Let me just chirp in um, an added uh, question uh, that wasn't asked, but is related to the previous one that I've really pondered and don't have good answers for. Um, what we know from pneumococcal pneumonia is that it's a big problem for elderly people. We know the immune response wanes in elderly people. And so there's always been a concern. We now have vaccines that are given to elderly people, um, not as widely taken up as one would like. When the pneumococcal vaccines were developed, uh, they were required as part of childhood immunization. And the great surprise that came from the first studies in California is as kids got vaccinated against uh, pneumococcal pneumonia in schools, grandma and grandpa stopped dying of pneumonia. And what we learned then is that children who in this context appear relatively refractory to the disease consequences of infection appear to get infected at about the same rate as ordinary middle-aged people. They just don't get sick and I think it's unclear why. And the question we don't have an answer, at least I certainly don't, is to what extent our kids who are infected would show up in the studies that have been done and tested them for a virus. To what extent do they play a role in transmission of COVID in the same sense that they uh, contribute to transmission of pneumococcal pneumonia, where uh, adults and middle-aged people, parental generations are likely to be relatively resistant but grandma and grandpa, the elderly people, are at the highest level of vulnerability. And uh, this has to be part of the considerations and the monitoring that will be done as schools are open. We're a different country than many in that there are relatively uh, small numbers of extended households where uh, kids, parents, and grandparents live in the exact same place. So it may not be as big a problem here as it is elsewhere, but it's something that really, I think, critically has to be monitored as schools open probably in the fall. Thank you. 
Uh, next question. Speaking of super spreading events, this goes back a little bit. Do you believe that the ongoing nationwide protests over police killings are likely to become super spreading events? I will introduce the subject, but really ask Bill to answer it. Um, there's a factor in, I'm not a modeler, and I, I look at models with uh, puzzlement and wonder and admiration for the people like Bill who, who does them. But there's a factor in the models called heterogeneity, and um, it, it is to reflect um, the variability of the ideal average circumstance of the R0 going into an empty room and how many people on a given day will be infected. And you can make calculations, and they do for heterogeneity in the real world. I, I would challenge Bill to ask, how do you do heterogeneity when you have millions of people, mostly young people, out without masks in mass gatherings for hours at a time? How do you handle the heterogeneity factor there? I will give you the answer um, with difficulty. So I'm going to. So my response is going to. Um, um, my response is going to take a couple of different angles. So the first thing is to note, obviously, the protests are directed against um, ongoing. I hesitate to call them problems because that seems to make it too um, small. The ongoing abuse of um, people of color by some police across the United States. This is a long problem and it's been going on for a very long time. And it is, that's what's underlying them. That in itself is a public health crisis. I will add to that that people of color have been disproportionately affected in the early stages of the pandemic for multiple reasons. It's not clear how much of the disproportionate impact is explained by exposure. It's not clear how much the disproportionate impact is explained by various different other risk factors. But it's without question, just look at the amounts of disease in the outer boroughs of New York in comparison to Manhattan. Now, it then comes to the question of how should we feel about protests? There have been protests in Michigan against the lockdown. Um, and there have been protests across the country um, more recently against the, you know, which have been basic, which have been initiated by more recent events, interactions between police forces and people of color. Now, I will note that gatherings of people are always going to be problematic where infectious disease is concerned. Many of the people organizing protests have actually been quite responsible in terms of encouraging distancing. This is not always, cannot always be maintained, but encouraging mask use and distancing. And most, if you look at the footage, you can see that a lot of people have been extremely responsible in doing that. It is also outdoors, and that matters, because outdoors, the risk of transmission is much less than if you are indoors in a poorly ventilated space without a mask. And that is the concern that I have, that's a concern I have, which I have not heard articulated as much as I think it should be, which is that any protesters who are um, arrested or otherwise detained and held indoors in a poorly ventilated area without access to a mask, um, are likely to be at a far higher risk of transmission from anybody who was detained along with them in the same space. And so those interacting things, which have, you know, 
this is a collision between different sorts of public health crises. And I think that we can expect it to have consequences. And exactly what parts of it are going to produce those consequences is really hard to predict in advance. Um, I will ask you a follow-up question. Uh, could you please elaborate on your characterization of police brutality on members of the minority community as a public health crisis? I think that we know that um, any interaction between, if we have a situation where law enforcement has been interacting with a community in such a way that it is difficult to be able to work with them in order to achieve public health goals, then that is always going to be a problem. I'm not going to say that it's true everywhere, because it's just not. You can see um, a different type of interaction occurring uh, in Denver, for instance, yesterday. But I don't think it, I think that I would probably um, suggest that it would be better to ask this question of one of my colleagues who works in social epidemiology like Nancy Krieger. I'm an infectious disease person. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks so much for doing this. Um, this is a vaccine question. Uh, so, I, yeah, um, Moderna came out with some early uh, uh, studies and, and sort of glowing headlines and got a lot of press, and then it turned out that maybe there was more there than met the eye originally. Uh, I'm curious what, what you think about sort of science by press release um, and whether these incomplete data releases and the accompanying, accompanying surges of positive press and stock prices make it harder for regulators to do whatever it is they need to do down the line. I feel that's a terrifically important question, and um, nobody could be more enthusiastic about the excitement around uh, developing new platforms for vaccines, moving um, the BARDA target was from any new pathogen that arose um, to have platforms that could produce candidate vaccines within 60 days. And the Moderna went from uh, the DNA sequence in January to a candidate in 65 days when it went into humans for the first time. So um, a tremendous acceleration of the science has moved vaccines forward. I was really disturbed by not just uh, Moderna, but others as well, the Oxford group as well, uh, presenting a press release without data, without a scientific review, without knowing what the press release really was based on, um, and very positively enough to raise the stock prices so that the next two days later, the um, officials within the companies sold their stocks and made a whole lot of money, whether or not the vaccine works. People that I know that work on vaccines are dedicated to the fact of saving lives, not making money. In general, that vaccine part of the pharmaceutical and vaccine industry has been the least um, uh, rewarding financially and probably uh, among the most rewarding in terms of numbers of lives saved for the work being done. Um, I would, er, I don't know how one controls that, but I think that there have been mechanisms to review science critically uh, that given the speed of COVID have gone out the window of having peer reviewed uh, stuff available to the public 
uh, everybody wants to move the science as quickly as possible. But if you go into the archives, if you ignore those that don't make any difference, um, probably half of what you read will not turn out to be true. Uh, so it's a challenge to those in the field and it's a challenge to the press um, to be as accurate as possible in presenting the possibilities and the limitations and not be manipulated by uh, people more interested in raising the price of the stock. You feel it's a challenge to regulators as well who you know, may have to be in the unenviable position of uh, saying, nope, this doesn't work after we all got excited about it? No, I don't think so. I have, uh, the common question that's asked is, in the acceleration of the research process on vaccines, and with the rush to be able to accelerate the clinical trials, phase one studies, morphing into phase two, which will then be if they turn out to be safe with signs of uh, protective uh, correlates, move smoothlessly or um, um, uh, seamlessly into larger expansion trials looking for effectiveness and safety. Um, I would be very, I would say, I would like to be very confident that the regulators of FDA, who are not political appointees but are professionals, uh, realize what's at stake uh, by rushing vaccines um, in a world with uh, a, a, a lot of doubts about the safety of regular vaccines and a lot of people actively opposed to vaccines, of letting anything out without reasonably good confidence. Uh, that the adverse effects will be uh, minimal and the protective value would uh, overwhelm any small risks uh, because all vaccines have some risks. Uh, people are uh, idiosyncratic how they react to any medical intervention. Uh, so I'd be confident that the regulators would hold on and when a vaccine emerges, and it may not be one of the front runners, um, that it would have gone through pretty critical scrutiny and large numbers to get a sense of um, adverse effects. Um, uh, so I would, I, would, I would put my confidence in the people at FDA to do what they're supposed to do. Thank you. And, and if it's okay, can I ask one more quick one? Sure, go ahead. Okay, thank you. You mentioned the politics. Uh, I'll make this quick. You mentioned the politics before. Do you think this sort of science by press release plays into the White House's and, and uh, the president's uh, tendency to go with his quote-unquote gut rather than the data? I, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea what information is picked up and jumped on by the White House uh, and I have no way to uh, understand that. I would commend to your attention the original French paper on uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine, which if we signed to a first year student, um, the day they come before they have any training in epidemiology, and if they couldn't tear that paper to shreds, um, they shouldn't be admitted to graduate school. It is a classic of what 
is not science by any criterion. Um, so that's what the original uh, press releases and enthusiasm derived from. Uh, so I can't answer the question of what sticks in terms of politically acceptable or in uh, a favorable science. And that's why we need to be as rigorous despite the urgency of getting the science right. There's an enormous amount at stake, not least credibility in the scientific enterprise. And as again, the Times story on the CDC points out, um, once you lose credibility with the public, it is very difficult to gain it back. And so we all have a lot to lose uh, by not getting things right scientifically. Thank you. I would only add to that, I mean, I'm, I want to say that I want to remember everything that Barry said about vaccines because it was extremely educational. It was, I thought it was very well put and educational for me. When it comes to science by press release, we've been seeing way too much of it. We have to remember that science and what's going on here and what works and what doesn't is going to be determined by nature. You know, and nature cannot be fooled. So we'll always remember nature cannot be fooled. Um, okay, next question. Hi, thank you so much. Um, my question has to do a little bit more about diagnostic testing. Uh, now that it seems much easier to get a test across the US, what is your sense of the turnaround time for these tests and the availability and reliability of rapid testing? And then as a follow-up to that, if a diagnostic test is taking up to 48 hours or 72 hours for a result, what effect does that have on containment and efforts like contact tracing? Thank you. I could talk a bit about the testing and then turn to Bill for the impact on uh, uh, usefulness in, in public health. Uh, the test, as you know, is an expensive and complicated uh, PCR test, um, and it's pretty sensitive, um, and it can be done in a massive scale uh, only recently, but by a limited number of companies, and that takes transport time. And I see very little on the horizon for the existing tests that can speed the delivery of the test from a clinical center. I'm keen on the saliva tests if we had more data on being pretty sure their sensitivity um, was as good as the nasal swab test, which is by itself somewhat um, uh, prone to not getting accurate samples. Um, um, I don't see how this can be speeded up unless every business and every uh, company has a device that can test the people that they want to test. I have uh, an interest in a new program at NIH that was launched by uh, the director Francis Collins and Tony Fauci a couple weeks ago, uh, which I hadn't seen anything like before, which is a, an RFA for applications with a very short turnaround time for a rapid, sensitive, inexpensive diagnostic test. The due date, I think, was the middle or end of May and the funding would be provided starting in July and August with an, an, um, 
an aim to have a new, highly sensitive, inexpensive uh, test uh, without pre-designing what it should measure that would be uh, as good and much more practical than the existing tests. At the time this was announced, there was one application already in that is being funded. Um, again, nothing is published on this, but it is a test that could be done incredibly cheaply. We're talking about somewhere between 20 cents and $2 a test. And the question is, if it were sensitive and specific, um, didn't require uh, complicated equipment, this is the kind of thing that NIH is selecting for. And I am modestly hopeful something will emerge from that by the end of the summer. Bill? Yes, thanks, Barry. That's very interesting. Um, I will note in passing that um, I should email you because I can think of a really good use for a very specific, but not necessarily that sensitive test. It could be really handy. So I'll email you about that. In terms of the epidemiological impact of a slow turnaround, well, obviously the quicker the better. So if you're talking about a situation where you're having to treat somebody um, and you're trying to get, if it's, if it's a question about treating a patient and determining appropriate treatment, you don't want to be having to spend that much time not knowing. In terms of tracking it in the community, then that's a period of time, you know, 24 hours, 48, no matter, however many it is, that the person in question may have been able to transmit to others. And obviously, when tests are done, people are told, you know, you should, you know, they're counseled and told you should isolate until you get the results back. You know, you should contact your friends and tell them that they should be isolating. Um, but human beings are human beings and they may not do that. So it's hard to quantify the exact results, the consequence of these relatively slow tests. Um, but I think it's very reasonable and it's simply intuitive un to understand that they will not help the contact tra tracing process. Thank you so much. Great. Uh, next question. Hi, uh, thank you for doing this. I wanted to follow up on the um, police protests again that we've been seeing across the country. You mentioned earlier uh, that mass gatherings like that are always problematic from an infectious disease perspective. Um, given that these protests are not really showing any sign of slowing down anytime soon. What do you think local authorities need to do given these circumstances to try to continue to slow the spread of the virus? Well, I think there are sort of two parts of it. One of them is not my area of expertise and so, like I said, there's a sort of social epidemiology here, which is a community outreach. Um, that's something which I think is important, but I would, you know, punt to an expert in terms of giving specifics about that. In terms of the protests continuing, I would hope that infection control is being practiced at, you know, as much as possible throughout, understanding that all of the people you're coming into contact with are potentially infectious. And you can, you know, I know it's slightly crazy to think that you should be doing physical distancing in situations like those that we have observed, but at any point, if you are traveling to it, if you are there, if, as I said, individuals who've been arrested or otherwise detained, if they can be held at distance apart from each other, continue still wearing masks and so on, that is something which is going to help protect them and also incidentally help protect the people you know, on, on all sides. Because the thing is, this virus doesn't care, you know, 
it, this virus isn't something that's going to make distinctions between us in that way. It will transmit given the opportunity. And I think that local public health authorities should be prepared and should be prepared to just give advice to all people involved and to be standing ready to help in order to limit transmission to all people involved. Dr. Boom, did you have anything you'd like to add? No, I, I would share that and I guess um, um, most worrisome for me in the, in the videos we've seen in the various protests um, have been that in almost no cases were the police or National Guard wearing masks. Some of them had plastic shields mostly over their helmets. So I had real concern for them standing next to one another in straight lines facing angry crowds that were uh, often yelling and screaming putting our um, our police in uh, a position of jeopardy that I found worrisome and then of course there were many of the protesters wearing masks uh, which as you know are not perfect but there were an awful lot that were not and um, I would be surprised if there is not some bump in um, uh, uptake of positives if we had systematic testing. Uh, and the hope is that on both sides, most are young enough uh, not to develop severe um, respiratory disease. That's the best I can hope for. Did you have a follow-up? Yes, yeah, sorry. Um I know we've gone over this a handful of times, but I guess I'm wondering what the, it, of course it's hard to calculate, but we have been touching on what the consequences of these protests could be. If, if either of the professors could expand a little bit on, on what type of consequence we're talking about here, though I understand with the caveat that it's hard to calculate exactly, just touch a bit on what the consequences of repeated mass gatherings like this could be in terms of the uh, coronavirus. Well, I think that the, I think that one of the answers, when I ask to give very precise predictions about the course of the pandemic, I tend to shy away from them, but I'm quite, I think we're quite able to give some broad outlines, which I hope will be helpful. As we said, um, these, the virus appears to have a, to transmit in particular from a subset of individuals, about 20% of people cause about 80% of the infections. Now that produces substantial stochasticity or randomness into what's going on. And so it's very hard to say definitively, oh, th this protest is going to cause a, a large spike in cases. Although I agree with Barry that if you were to do very, very good testing virtually everywhere, you would see that they were followed by some kind of increase within the community. But what we want to be concerned about is the potential for comparatively large increases. If we have, um, I mean, like Barry said, there's the, um, the South Korean nightclub led to um, infection of 90 people who then went on and infected 60 something more before they were able to stamp on it as a result of something like 40,000 plus tests which were being done looking for all the people involved. So if that's a situation which occurs there, it's very easy to understand that there are going to be some it's, there are likely to be spikes and unpredictable flare-ups following these protests. As I say, it's not going to be clear whether they occurred at the protest or through other things which are connected with it, traveling to it, people who've been arrested, detained, and so on. And, you know, 
I think that there is no question but that there will be a consequence. Dr. Bloom, do you have a comment? No, I agree entirely. <laughs> okay, great. Do you have any follow-up questions or are you all set? I guess that was really it. The only thing I would uh, add would be uh, how soon until we find out the consequences of these protests? When oh, that, we... sure. So actually, this, that's a, that's gives me an opportunity to um, do a more general thing, which I think is important. Um, so you're not necessarily going to immediately know because of the fact that, as we were saying, there isn't, we don't actually have good population surveillance anywhere. So you're just, I mean, it's, we're going to be playing catch up with this. We're not going to notice the consequences until people are falling ill um, and getting counted in a few weeks or so. It may be that you won't see the consequences until community transmission leads to a burst of infections in care homes or something like that, which will be a few weeks away. Um, however, I want to, Chris, if I can take the your question as an opportunity to raise an important point. We talk a lot about the reproductive number and whether or not it's above one. And if it's above one, then you start entering a phase of exponential growth. Now, that is understood by a lot of people to mean that there's basically a freight train coming at you fast. That's not true. If the reproductive number is only slightly above one, given the doubling time, sorry, given the period between subsequent infections and this, we don't expect to see a large increase for some weeks. And as a result of that, it may not be apparent, in particular with the lack of good surveillance in large parts of the country. So if you're looking for the consequences of this, you're very unlikely to be seeing them tomorrow. You're quite unlikely to be seeing them next week. Two to three weeks from now, maybe you'll be seeing them then. And one of the problems that we have had in the pandemic in general is that people take too long to respond to a virus which spreads silently among us and can affect large numbers before we realize that it's actually in a community. And by the time that we're able to respond, we are forced to take relatively, you know, draconian measures such as the shutdowns, which have caused so much controversy. Let me just pick up on that. And, and I think it's a really important point. When, when we say, well, well, what are the consequences of transmitting infection in groups? It means the people in those groups, some of them three weeks from now, an unknown and probably very small number will develop symptoms of COVID or become COVID positive. We're not gonna see a spike until they amplify that small number by transmitting it exponentially to communities. And that's gonna take weeks, not days. Um, and I'm just gonna chime in here real quick. Would the age of the protesters affect how this could play out because they're uh, just from what I've seen in the media, quite a few of the protesters are relatively young, which I would think would mean they might be asymptomatic. So they may actually not be showing up in That's right. as, so could this even, their age also be affecting the That's final. exactly right. In, in exactly what I was, uh, if I was more articulate, could have said, is that many of these people who get infected are not going to get sick. You're not going to know that they're spreading it until they spread it to people who do get sick. And that may only be after they amplify the infection throughout their communities. That's exactly the point. Uh, 
Exactly what Barry said. Um, it's also true that if you look at serology from various other places, we do. It looks as if the younger age group is actually very important in terms of you know contributing to the force of infection in communities. They do a lot of transmitting to each other, and so you know while some of them will get badly ill and have a you know, hopefully very few, the knock-on effect is what we need to be looking out for. That's what makes infectious diseases sort of different from chronic diseases. It's the fact that you have this feedback such that you end up with exponentials and stuff like that. Okay, great, thanks. Uh, looks like that's our last question. Dr. Bloom, do you have any final words before we end the call? No, I thank you for all the good questions and for not asking me about the Lancet paper on hydroxychloroquine. Uh, we'll save that for our next occasion. All right, and Dr. Hannish, do you have any final thoughts? Nothing other than to say it's been a pleasure talking to you all and obviously pleasure talking with Barry as usual. Um, and I'll echo his comments about um, hydroxychloroquine. This concludes the June 3rd press conference.